the Lightly Literary Podcast, the only book club podcast that dumps all of our old bad episodes into a single jar. We keep it sealed up tight, and you'll never know which episodes those are, Amanda. Yeah, what would be the only one that would be left behind? The one that gives hope? I don't know. What's a book that we absolutely <laughs> loved? Probably The Bluest Eye, like a Toni Morrison episode uh, that we, yeah. where we love mm-hmm. that book. But yeah, we, we dump mm-hmm. all of our old ones and keep them sealed away. So not even Zeus yeah. will get to them. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a jar, not a box, notably. I mean, that's a critical right. misinterpretation that's really been floating around. Mm-hmm. Come on, guys. Yeah, we would never deign to use a box. We're, we're way more professional <laughs> than that. If you are uh, wondering why we're evoking the Pandora's Jar myth, or Pandora's Box myth, to, to most, at least, modern readers, <laughs> I was going to say American, but it's just any modern reader, that is exactly. because we are here today with a book club episode. These are analytical deep dive episodes, and today's will be covering the first half of the essay or... I would call it an essay collection, right? I mean, it's scholarship. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Scholarly um, nonfiction yeah, work. It's an analysis, uh, and it is called Pandora's Jar. It is by author Natalie Haynes. We're going with Haynes, right? Yeah, I think okay. so. Natalie Haynes. And we'll be discussing the first half of those essays today, breaking them down in some detail. We are, as I mentioned, the Lightly Literary Podcast, so follow us on Instagram and Facebook under that same handle, and it's all one word, just at the Lightly Literary Podcast. So check us out there. That's where we post updates. Now that it's a new year, or at least we're recording this in the new year, um, you'll hear this probably in February. But anyway, <laughs> check us out there. That's where we keep you know most updates and active things going. And like I said, it's a book club episode, so we will be spoiling, if you can even be said to spoil myths that are thousands of years old, the first half of this essay collection. Should we run through which essays we'll be doing? We'll basically be spoiling, quote-unquote, everything up through the essay on the Amazons. So the Amazons essay is the final one that we have read. I think Helen of Troy is in there. Pandora's in there. Who am I missing? Um, Medusa and Medusa. Yeah, that's a big one. Uh, Jocasta. Oh, okay. Jocasta's the one that I completely forgot about then. The the others all sound familiar to me. Maybe that's the one that I'll, I'll do the least work with, <laughs> bring up the least. Anyway, um, so that's what we'll be discussing today. Hope you're in for the discussion, in for the analysis. Any content warnings you could think of? I mean, Greek myths pretty much just have a smorgasbord of strange and unacceptable behavior to modern people, uh, violence, <laughs> sexual assault and abuse and things like that. And But none of it's gratuitous, and certainly the author doesn't go into detail. She mentions events that happen that are significant, but doesn't... Right. It's not like you're enmeshed or involved in the plot of these stories. She's just doing analysis. So any content warnings? No, just, I mean, she does, like you said, she mentioned certain things, but she definitely... It's not a work of fiction. It's not It's not descriptive in that way. So, yeah. yeah. I think it's about as kind of tame as you can do in terms of summary and approaching the myths just kind of reasonably and straightforwardly. So mm-hmm. let's dive into it then. We'll begin with our first book club segment, which is the 60-second summary challenge, which is kind of what it sounds like. Each of us is going to have 60 seconds to summarize this first half of the collection. This is just meant for listeners who maybe have not read the book and are listening anyway. We always appreciate you, even if you're not reading along with us, just to give a very brief, obviously goofily brief overview of what this book has been about and what it's like. Do you want me to go first? Sure. Well, it won't go well, because I forgot there was even a whole essay on Jocasta, so... (laughs) I'm going to cheat on this one, and I'm going to look at the table of contents, I think. Oh, yeah. That's smart. I just forgot... I'm going to do the same. Yeah, I just forgot which essays were in here, so... Uh, Yeah, anyway, that's how I'm going to (laughs) cheat. That's how I win. That's how I get ahead. Um, Okay, tell me when the timer is ready. All right, and go. So the first essay is about Pandora. Basically, Pandora's been misinterpreted. She shouldn't be blamed for causing all the ills and releasing the world. It's really the god's fault. And also, it's a jar, not a box, which means that she wasn't even trying to hide it away or, like, be secretive or anything, so that one's wrong. Jocasta, I've forgotten some skipping. Helen of Troy, she also should not be blamed for her ills because she was just manipulated by the gods and other men around her and didn't essentially cause any direct harm. Also, there's some myth 
with versions that she wasn't even like involved in the problems and kind of was used as a I don't know there's like a holographic version of her anyway Medusa also misunderstood Medusa is a lonely castaway cast off person isolated in society and again is haunted and and literally hunted by a hero and shouldn't be blamed she wasn't causing anyone trouble and the Amazons are actually respected as warriors and not to be feared or sexualized that's a modern interpretation the Greeks respected wow. them perfect and and now it's a minute so nice you did that uh, like under a minute almost. there we go okay <laughs> getting more adept at cutting things out I think <laughs> that's the big change just you know yep happier to reduce the content and go simpler hopefully you can cover jacosta in your summary um and any uh, analytical yeah. points i missed do you feel yeah, ready I'll try i'm ready okay let's start now um so in all of these she uh haynes discusses like the importance of of language and, and the loss of translation and how the um uh, modern works um, because of differences in translations and because of differences in in views, especially of women and women's roles in society, how um, these stories have changed over time and how they're now represented. And as far as Jocasta, Jocasta was the 30. mother of Oedipus, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and she is... Um, not given much uh, screen time, but then once she actually is in one of the plays, she is given um, a bit more of a voice where she's actually seen after um, the revelation instead of just immediately killing herself Ten. like in the Oedipus Tyrannus one. Um, but she's a stronger female in that play by Euripides, I believe. Nice. And done. Excellent. Yeah. Well, we've covered all the bases between those. <laughs> yeah. What did, uh, that's I'd... a selective summary, I guess we'll call it. A strategic? <laughs> strategic summarizing? What did, yeah. what did we miss from the other ones since I, you know, hastily summarized so many of them? Any major points? I mean, we'll dig into them in a second, but any major points we missed? I don't think so. I don't think so. Nice. Okay. I try to do a blanket summary of just its language and changing perceptions yeah that's a good point you did cover well kind of i would say what her most her most recurring kind of academic niche or academic interest is with any i think if you're doing any sort of classic study this obviously translation becomes such a major foundational aspect of that part of that and so yeah it's unsurprising i guess to see that but it is definitely part of her scholarship and work is to focus on translation focus on original greek text and uh, do some myth comparing too it's obviously comparative or quite comparative so there's also that shall we dive into some quotes then i think we've summarized it well enough let's actually get into some myths and some interpretations i also feel yeah, bad now about it. the jocasta one because as soon as you said oedipus i immediately remembered that essay but it's just that mm. oedipus is such a looming figure that i just thought of it as the oedipus chapter i'm definitely part of uh, the problem that's my uh, that's my own misogyny taken over there i think because i uh, <laughs> like as soon as you said oedipus i was like oh yeah there was an essay about his wife slash mother character yeah i just yeah yeah his name is so ingrained into my brain that i anyway um misremembered so <laughs> yeah that that one's on me um <laughs> let's dive in some quotes why don't you start us off uh this sure. is a segment i should say where we each give a few quotes from the work just to do some specific analysis talk about things that have jumped out to us things we've enjoyed and noticed and just wanted to bring to discussion what do you have to start um, I am going to start with on uh, page 109, which is the uh, Medusa chapter. She um, kind of discusses, she throws, she likes to invoke Freud, but to like poke fun at him. Yeah, not um, a Freud fan. Yeah, it, which I, I found really funny. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so I'm just going to read this real quick. Conversely, there is, it seems, always a sexual element to the beheading of Medusa. Freud saw it as a castration myth because his need to make everything about the male experience apparently precluded him from noticing that it is Medusa who gets beheaded and that she might therefore be a more relevant archetype for women than men. A Freudian slip, perhaps. If you are looking for a gendered psychological interpretation of the Medusa story, surely it would make more sense to suggest that it represents an abiding fear of the power of the female gaze. So, um, I pulled that little paragraph, uh, for two reasons. One is like, I just, I love that she kind of like pokes fun at Freud. Um, and also just like, you know, points to the fact that Freud's, um, 
literary analysis is is very much uh, male centered, mm-hmm. and also the introduction of the idea of like the female gaze versus the male gaze, which I find really interesting and and pretty important when you're discussing um, works in any kind of media, really. Yeah, though, though that is a, a rather modern term like i don't there's no way freud could have applied that term that term did not exist <laughs> at least didn't it I, I my own history with that term or my own knowledge of its history rather is kind of vagueish but i thought that was a term that came up was it like the advent of tv did some social scientist coin that term like in the 70s or 80s maybe i don't actually know yeah. when it came and i thought it was I a think tv it was, thing yeah. It's definitely a movie and TV thing, but it is, is now applied to, like mm-hmm. across the media. But like, yeah, it was. It's a newer term, but I think very fitting, even like when we discuss like ancient works and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we used to just call that point of view. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now yeah. that's that's what social sciences do. Though we always we invent new terms to further clarify and define old terms we already had. That's just that's just part name of the game. But no, yes, that's it's something that she returns to as well, and I think brings up at least one other time that I can remember the the gaze yeah. kind of social science one. Did you find? I, I guess does she engage with Freud deeply? It, it, it does seem like he almost is a cast off kind of. You you would have to go into this assuming he's baseline kind of a joke I think because I don't there's never a section where she like does a full I don't know I was gonna say do him justice I'm not some Freud defender I don't even believe that deeply in his ideas <laughs> but I yeah. yeah it's not it's not something for her to dwell on in a serious way he's just uses kind of a little punching bag yeah that's exactly how I took him um her attitude towards him each time that mm-hmm. she's mentioned him it's been as the butt of some joke about like his inability to really um, cope with female perspective and, and female voice. Right. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Why don't I give a quote from the Medusa chapter two? I was thinking that in terms of the the chapters I've enjoyed the most so far, it's been the Medusa and the Amazons one. But I also think mm-hmm. that's just heavily skewed because I believe of the ones she's chosen, those are the two that survive into modern times and keep coming up. They keep getting evoked and invoked. I don't know if yeah. you agree with that, but it's just like I, those are the two that I have been the most engaged with, I think, for that reason. Like, I couldn't even remember the Jocasta because it's in high school. I had to read the Oedipus, you know, play Oedipus Tyrannus or whatever the the original or the, the kind of major one is called. And so that's yeah. why my brain is so scrambled because it's like, well, outside of an AP high school class or some college lit course or history or world history or whatever, you're just very unlikely to encounter references to that. Um, it's true. So, any, but there's also like Helen of Troy is like that's a big one. Still pretty, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, and also because Troy got a remake, you know, with Brad Pitt, so yep. <laughs> it definitely yep. brings things back into the fore uh, culturally speaking. <laughs> anyway, but no. So I, I also wanted to pull something from Medusa, um, just because again it felt like the most I don't know engaging to me, just relevant. So mm-hmm. this is on page. 95, and she spends a good amount of time on interpreting Greek artwork in this book. That's a, if you want to talk about motifs, which we will, that's definitely one of them. She relies, mm-hmm. I wouldn't say heavily on it. She, I think, relies the most, of course, on the text of the myths. But yeah, falls back to art quite a lot to bolster her points and try and reinforce some ideas. Makes sense. I mean, archaeologically, what else survives? Can't exactly interview the Greek playwrights about this, so <laughs> that's, that's about as good as we're going to get, I think, um, in terms of primary sources. Anyway, there's one pot, though, that she... It's, it says it's in the Metropolitan Museum in New York. It is a red figure, pea-like or pellic jar. Um, it says it stands out almost half a meter high and was painted by an artist, Polynotus. Polynotus. Anyway, so from the 5th century BC, this is the a paragraph about it. The pot is frankly extraordinary. It might be the most sympathetic depiction of Medusa in any medium. It reveals that what so much of the myth obscures, stripped of the monster hero dynamic, all we see is a man beheading a woman. The immediate aftermath of the decapitation can be seen on a small Hedera water jar in the British Museum, attributed to Pan Peter. Peter. Anyway, um, this is, I think, where she pushes things too far, but I, I respect the hustle of it, so to speak, because mm-hmm. when you want to analyze things and you bring a certain frame of analysis to it, 
the frame will always crack and bend. I mean, it's like there's no one an analytical framework that works for everything. And I, this mm-hmm. is a, just a moment. It's funny, too, because my other two quotes are about w- <coughs> moments where she compelled me. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's a really great rereading. I'd never thought of that. I didn't know it, etc. And this just happened to be one, the example I wanted to pull of something that just didn't work. Um, it's very odd to analyze something by saying it reveals so much of what the myth obscures, stripped of the monster hero dynamic. Yeah, but it is a myth. That would be like saying right. when you look at a right. car, but it's not a car, it's a weird combination of parts. And it's like, well, yeah, <laughs> I guess so. But why is that helpful or analytically? Right. Like, why does I, I, the funny thing too is the rest of the Medusa chapter again had really good points in it, the kind of isolation or loneliness. Obviously, the, and the myth just isn't from her point of view. So of course we're we're going to know so much more about is it Perseus I think or Theseus? I think it's Perseus, but anyway about yeah why he did what he did and his his like genocidal behavior with her head. I think she interpreted that well. The fact that you know Medusa is more powerful in death than in life is kind of interesting. And there, yeah, she does good work here. It's not like a bad chapter, but that paragraph is just absurd and it's like you yeah i mean if you if you reduce things and reduce all of their context like of course you can kind of lay it out however you want to lay it out like i don't i don't know it just didn't seem like a very helpful one and i thought it was an example of how i'm not going to blame it on the art analysis because i think also that works a lot of the time but this felt really sloppy to me and just kind of like simplistic to the point of meaninglessness yeah i get that um i I was as I was reading that I was like what point is she trying to drive home here as far as like reducing it down to a man killing a woman okay is it just the act of violence is it the helplessness that Medusa was feeling but you already had done that through other analysis so it's yeah, like of the I, actual I, myth yeah. like for example exactly. I didn't know or had forgotten or, or whatever because the modern interpretations always show her as a kind of like hyper dangerous not aggressor because Perseus always hunts her down but she defends herself she's like has you know she actively attacks him back and has weapons and yada yada they like they battle essentially but in the original mm-hmm. myth she's asleep and he just cuts off her head <laughs> like he just yeah. kind of cheats his way through it and gets all the help from the gods and just shows up when she like that I think is a much more important point to evoke and remind a modern reader like look this myth is not the battle cool modern battle of equal footing that you have been led to believe it's like him totally exploiting this creature who is just minding her own business and is literally sleeping like that makes the point like doing that yeah I don't know I found that paragraph just so needlessly Yeah, I mean, I think also it's interesting, though, because evoking one of the art pieces that shows her sympathetically is kind of intriguing. I mean, it's anytime there's one exception with like thousands of examples going the other way, it's intriguing. But yeah, I found that analysis really bad. It was just kind of like, yeah, that's not that doesn't work for me. But no, I think, like I said, it's odd. I just wanted to pull one example of that because I thought the chapter worked pretty well and reminded me of a couple key points that I had not known or had forgotten. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any? Um, let's jump to another myth. Unless, did you have any other quotes from from Medusa? Uh, nope. Okay. Not from Medusa. Yeah, I like that chapter though. That one uh, stuck yeah, with that's me. Yeah, a good one. Um, take us to another one then. Where we where are we headed? Um, I'm going to Helen, and this one is actually the the last um paragraph from that essay. Um. And so I'm just going to read this real quick. And so we are left as, is it pronounced Ptolemy? Ptolemy? Oh, the, is it the elder something? As Ptolemy's, Ptolemy's curious list suggests, um, with an array of Helens, none of whom seem quite real and all of whom seem to represent the desires of their creators. Look at the certainty with which Achilles is drawn, his speed, his anger, his love for Patro- Patroclus. I'm terrible with Greek names. Um, his I always commitment went with to Patroclus, honor- but that was because Patroclus. of the movie with Brad Pitt. He used Patroclus. Okay. <laughs> yeah, anyway. Patroclus. Patroclus, yeah, he, maybe he did research. Yeah. Um, his commitment to honor and immortality through fame, he is defined by what he wants and strives for and loses. And then think of Helen and how much harder she is to pin down her confused parentage, her contested childhood, her multiple marriages. 
One of our earliest narrative tradition states that the most notorious fact about her that she lived with Paris is actually a lie. The real Helen is elsewhere, while a war is fought over an unreal creature and image. In fact, the more we try to understand her, the more she seems to elude us. Helen of Troy, Helen of Sparta, Helen of Joy, Helen of Slaughter. Um, I, I picked that because I was like, that's a really nice way to distill one of the points in, in the Helen essay that I think could apply to all these female characters is that the male characters, their, their stories are, are fairly like just static throughout, right? They're, they don't change much, um, from author to author, from poet to poet, from, you know, storyteller to storyteller. It is the females who are way more nebulous in, in the literature. It's their, their stories are constantly changing to fit the male narrative. And, um, and I thought that that was a really nicely put, um, um, example and something that, that applies to all these female characters thus far. No, it's and it's works perfectly that you're kind of framing that that way. It works perfectly with how she analyzes it because when a character is given ten lines of language instead of a hundred lines, or you know, I'm making those numbers up. Yeah. But when it's skewed like that, when their side characters are even less than side characters, then any translation changes are going to pr- profoundly impact how we interpret those characters because there's yep. so little to understand them. So as soon as you change one verb or one adjective or whatever, it like completely flips the way we interpret them. And that's why her language work is so essential. It also, this book, we, we didn't do on the top, maybe we should have like a how have you like this, but this book is nothing at all like what I thought it would be. <laughs> this is just like a scholarship. You know, it's written pretty fr- in a pretty friendly, approachable way. This is not, I wouldn't say, the deep this is not in the deep recesses of academia or something but it's a lot more scholarly than i was expecting like two to threefold (laughs) yeah for me too i um i thought that there would be because on the back cover it says that the writer is also a stand-up comic i was like oh she's going to infuse a lot of like humor it's going to be very Mm lighthearted. um no this is straight up scholarship which is not bad i i do find it also approachable and and i have actually enjoyed reading up um, on this, I'm also not super familiar with Greek mythology. Right. I think you and I, like a couple of years, three years, I don't even know when we started, but like one of the first stories you and I did together was one of the Greek myths. Oh, yeah. Um, we did a couple of them too. Bits from the Odyssey. Yeah. I think we did Antigone. Yeah. The And the Iliad. I oh, think we yeah, did yeah. A, a piece That's, from there. Right. Yeah. No, it's it's been yeah, it's been more work than I expected, but in the end it's paid off because as a writer voice, you know, she's approachable, she keeps it pretty fun. Um mm-hmm. but there are there are, you know, paragraphs where you have to contend with some careful analyses and also she's just it's just how myths go, but there's just so many names, you know how it gets me down. It bogs me yeah. down. <laughs> Ten names in a single paragraph, I just you know, it, it starts to creates a fog or a haze in my mind um yeah i didn't pull anything else from helen's chapter but i did appreciate like you said i think her ultimate framing it as sort of we see projections of men depending on the myth she's in depending on the time of the story she just kind of becomes a vessel for whatever the problems the men are having i thought it was astute enough again i think her point was well made she had solid examples for that that is just sort of helen is just kind of this beauty object and you know whatever version uses her evokes her gets whatever it wants out of it i believe we'll also come back later to the star trek example but i thought that worked pretty well actually and you know fitting enough since star trek is kind of famous for taking classic stories and twisting them so mm-hmm. yep. that definitely works. Um, let's talk about Pandora. Should we jump to Pandora? Yeah, let's do it's it. It's the titular myth, you know, so there's, there's that. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to pull one quote about what she releases just because I think, again, it shows it shows the aptness of her analysis, the uh, Haynes's analysis in terms of language and, and translation, which this book really relies on that. Like if, it, if and I, you know, far be it for me to challenge her on these because I've never translated from Greek and have never studied it. And so I guess if some of these are off, then I won't be the one to know. Um, assuming that all of her translations and everything is accurate and astute, I found it to be really helpful and insightful because it's just things that, you know, is a common 
you know, culture consumer, I guess, <laughs> I wouldn't have thought about anyway. So let's talk about what Pandora releases, because, you know, infamously in the myth that we all know, she releases all these horrible things, and then the final thing releases Hope, which is, you know, the sweet little ending to the story, which is like, ah, well, the world may be terrible, but we can always choose to have hope, etc. So it says, Scholars is on 16. Scholars have been divided on their reading of this passage, not least because, although Elpis, if that's how it's pronounced, is usually... Um, translated as hope, it doesn't quite mean that. Hope is intrinsically positive in English, true, but in Greek and the same with the Latin equivalent spes or space, it is not. Since it really means the anticipation of something good or bad, a more accurate translation would probably be expectation. Before we can worry about whether it's advantageous to us that it means that it remains in the jar, we first have to decide if it is intrinsically good or bad. This is a genuinely complex linguistic and philosophical puzzle. No wonder it's easier to just blame Pandora. So yeah, I mean, and I'm not going to keep quoting the rest of her essay and how she unpacks that, uh, though she does a good job of that, of course, but even just knowing that, then it really does throw our entire interpretation into a much more, because, you know, you could read her as an even more villainous figure (coughs) then. She doesn't have that redemptive small moment, or I guess the gods wouldn't, because isn't it the gods who packed up that jar? Yeah, she makes the point that nobody knows where this jar came from oh, in the first right. place. Like, yeah. she was created, she was sent down, and then all of a sudden she has a jar. Right. And so, I, you know, in, in terms of the, the writers, the myth creators, like, were they trying to be incredibly pessimistic? Were they trying to make a subtler point about humankind and our kind of reliance on hopefulness even in the face of terrible odds and tragedies and yeah it just it really does recast the myth in a critical way and it's just such a cool little thing to learn i mean i don't i don't think if you're going in to read this book we'll get to this in the recommendation later of course but if you're going in to read this book i don't know if i would recommend this as just a book of cool factoids because it's a little too challenging just for that like if that's all you're looking for i don't think this quite fits the bill but that's just a cool factoid (laughs) it was like something i learned where i was like oh wow that's like that deeply changes. I can see why scholars argue about this forever, uh, because that's an incredibly subtle and different way to have to read something. So, I've definitely appreciated um, how she has been handling these myths because I mean I am I'm somewhat familiar with them, but I'm I'm probably the person that she's like you know, talking the most about when she's like, it's yeah. the, these myths endure, but it's not because we study them in depth, but because it's just like almost word of mouth, what we know about, um, mm-hmm. these characters. And, and that's exactly what it is. Is like, I, I know it because it's an illusion. So I look up the illusion and that's it. Right. Yeah. And so I'm like the person that she's like talking about when it comes to like ignorance no, and definitely. knowledge here. <laughs> well, and I think, and most people too, I mean the vast, vast majority, but then also this was such a good choice, I think, to open the book because it's literally idiomatic. Like people know the idiom Pandora's jar or opening a jar of trouble or whatever the idioms would be. And so this is a very smart choice to start with because it's, she really wants to immediately poke at some incredibly fundamental repetitive things that just have been suffused into the culture so yeah i thought it was a good choice to start but and a strong example of how again it's not really a book of factoids if i want to keep bringing up that term but that i think was just such an interesting thing to read and well explained i Um, agree your final quote are we jumping to the amazons because my final one is from that section too it is the Amazon. Yeah. Amazons and Medusa. I really think I, that's why I'm kind of <laughs> curious because the second half there aren't many myths I know about in the second half. I'm really curious to see if that'll hold my attention. But because um, those first the the ones about the myths I've read definitely have. Anyway, let's talk about Amazons. You can start us off. Yeah. Um, so my quote is kind of like twofold. So I'll start with the shorter one, which is from page 134. Um, uh, when Penthesilea? Penthesilea? Uh, so when the main Amazon uh, goes running into um, Troy after Hector has been killed, and um, she's like, I'm going to fight Achilles. Um, she essentially, she inspires a lot of the women in um, in Troy, and so it says here <clears throat> 
She makes other world ordinary mortal women feel strong enough to subvert the vast weight of expectations which which circumscribe their behavior. A large group of Trojan women take up arms ready to join the fray, but they are dissuaded at the last minute by an old priestess, Theano, who advises caution. She reminds these women that they cannot compare themselves with Penthesilea because she is a daughter of Ares. <clears throat> Buffy, um... The Vampire Slayer. She um, empowers the entire, uh, like, all these possible slayers and trains them and kind of creates her own tribe. Uh, And so in this final paragraph, it says, And this is what makes Buffy a contemporary Amazon. She may be uniquely talented, like Penthesilea, but she steps away from individual glory. Her status is not threatened by creating more heroic women, quite the reverse. It is cemented. Amazons, even when one is exceptional, are a team, a tribe, a gang, and it is this which Buffy captured so perfectly, an ensemble of women fighting to save us all. So I chose that um, because that's one of the main points that she makes about like Achilles versus Penthesilea or any of the Amazons or any of the male heroes versus the Amazonian heroes who are... Um, as she points out, really actually respected as warriors and not, yeah, you know, uh, looked down on even though they're women, um, is the the way that they fight is together. So it's very much tribal. It's very much everything is done um, with somebody else. And um, they don't need that personal glory. Any personal glory is actually for the benefit of, of their tribe. Um, which I found really interesting. And then, and then she inspires others to also fight like Buffy does. But then the response is different where, um, in the original myth, the the one person is like this one lady's like, no, sorry, you guys, eh, let's, let's just stick with the status quo here. Let's not go out fighting. Let's not, you know, take on the manly mantle here and and start, you know, protecting ourselves. Um, which I found just really interesting that, and she also doesn't really discuss that moment. She inserts that moment with Theano in there, but then she doesn't discuss it any further. Right. Um, and then it ends with this empowerment at the end that, um, that the Trojan women did not have, but that uh, modern women do, I guess. Yeah. Did you like the, this isn't what my quote's about, but did you like how she brought in the Wonder Woman analysis? It was one of the lengthier, I know you quoted from Buffy there, which I think you probably like Buffy more than Wonder Woman, I have to assume. (laughs) So there's that, but did did you enjoy the analysis of that film since it's pretty new, you know? Yeah, I've, I saw the film once, and uh, so I knew what she was talking about and stuff, and <coughs> I thought she did um, a pretty good job with that, actually. Yeah, I, I enjoyed that. Um, I think she could have gone more in-depth with that movie, because it is, I mean, uh, a retelling of that, but yeah, it was interesting. It was, I just, in terms of page count, it was the one that I think got the most pages of any of her yeah. modern illusions and analyses, right? I yeah, think. it was definitely the longer bit, for sure. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely true. Well, let's do one more bit of analysis on the Amazons before moving on, because I pulled the quote from that, too. This is, you'll be unsurprised to learn another just bit of translation from ancient Greek that helped me understand things quite a lot. <laughs> it's from page 118 about the belt that, is it Hippolyta? Hippolyta? I say, I say Hippolyta, but Hippolyta. I could be wrong. Yeah. Let's go with Hippolyta. It's about the belt that Hippolyta has. Um, it says, or rather, not plain and simple, the belt, ornate and highly decorated because Amazons separated themselves from respectable Greek norms with their choice of clothing, as well as their all-female society and fighting skill. Unlike Greek men and women who wore tunics of varying lengths and draperies over bare legs, Amazons wore tunic tops over trousers and leggings. And then here about the belt itself, so we know they're dress differently. Um, It says, not for the first time, we see that an accurate translation has been sacrificed in the pursuit of making women less alarming and less impressive in English than they were in Greek. Euripides, Pseudo-Apollodorus, and Apollonius of Rhodes 
Uh, there's a bunch more names here. It's going to break me. <laughs> Diodorus, Sicilus, and Pausanias all use the word Zoster or Zoster. For all these men, Hippolyta is a warrior, plain and simple. So Zoster is the word in ancient Greek that would be used for like a belt that holds swords and weapons. And, you know, it's like a warrior belt. It's a martial belt. That is just such a critical update. Now, granted, I don't know if that necessarily affects how modern Amazon women, let's just use the Wonder Woman films as an example, like they're all they're a warrior cast in that movie etc etc, so I don't know if it like deeply changes things, but it's just such a crucial reminder of how any sort of really gendered stuff that comes up is gonna be done not from the original phrasings and it just is it just reminds us how the history with these stories and the history how it changes things and infuses new ideas into these things is really clear once you look at some of the bare simple language of it like she of course Mm -hmm. she has a warrior's attire she's just a warrior to be respected feared like any other warrior cast so just you know it's a simple reminder and you know her her work academically or in terms of scholarship there is pretty compelling i think but yeah Yeah. simple but effective where it was just kind of like a reminder of oh yeah so all the other (laughs) stuff that gets layered on all the other interpretations get layered on that's more of a a now thing or an overtime thing not an original myth thing yep yep that's a great point and it's actually something that um was part of my motif Sweet. Let's segue right into that. Let's do our part three segment for book club. Um, That's going to be the motifs that matter. In every book club part one, we decide to pick one motif per person in the first half that has jumped out at us, something to discuss, something to analyze and delve into a little more deeply. Let's go with yours because I believe it's about translating well. Good translation. Yeah. So the motif is the importance of language and especially the importance of uh, correct translations. Um, or the uh, highlighting the changes in translations over time. Um, so we were just talking about Hippolyta and her belt, or as it has come to be known as a girdle. Um, and that's something that she discusses in detail. So you were just saying that <clears throat> the Zorster, which is you know a, a warrior's belt, but over time it had become, at some point it became a girdle, which is not first of all, an attractive word. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> Especially implies, today, yeah. Even even yeah. 100 years ago, it would have been, you know, debatably so. But now, yeah, especially, that's strange. Yeah. It's, it's, it's meant, so a girdle is what you imagine for women, and it's what you imagine for women who are trying to create <clears throat> an illusion of a figure, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, Pure is is not functional except for an aesthetic reason. Um, so what I so she points out that the reason that so, so she also when she's talking about these um, changes in language, um, she also points out that it's often motivated. She discusses possible motivations, but the motivation is often quite simply just that you know they. These are men writing women, mm-hmm. and uh, these men are um, putting on what they believe uh, are feminine ideals for these women, so according to the times. So by changing it from a belt, a war belt, to a girdle, they are... Um, yeah, the, the translation is... I'm, I'm going to read it here real quick. Page yeah, 117. Yeah. Of course. Um, and which somewhat irritatingly translators have tended to describe as Hippolyta's girdle. This translation is a bizarre choice, even if we are, like Puck in A Midsummer's Night Dream, thinking of a genderless girdle which can be put around the earth, about the earth, uh, in 40 minutes. Though for many people today, the word girdle implies an undergarment worn by women of my grandmother's generation. One occasionally saw them on washing lines in my childhood damp instruments of torture. It is an enormous pity to see Hippolyta distorted and diminished by this linguistic shift. She is wearing neither restrictive underwear nor a simple tie around her waist. She is wearing a war belt. Mm-hmm. Um, not for the first time we see that an accurate translation has been sacrificed in the pursuit of making women less alarming and less impressive in English than they were in Greek. 
<clears throat> she's uh, the motivation that she is pinpointing here is that to change the word from war belt to girdle we are feminizing the woman you know making her seem more feminine according to feminine ideals of the time right in order to make her less threatening to the male ego right to the male perception so there's that that male gaze again coming in um into the discussion, um, which is pretty important. And it's something that we see repeating over and over um, throughout these essays. Yeah. Um, another example of uh, the importance of language and, and correct translation, which you brought up earlier, was uh, Pandora's jar versus the box, and also just the meaning of Pandora's name. Um, right. The name itself, which was pretty important, but you you, you discussed like with the jar versus <clears throat> the box and how the box wasn't even something that came up until like they started painting and it was in like the eighteen hundreds or something fifteen hundreds maybe that yeah. it was a, a box instead of a jar. Well, and what um, was the? You might remember this or could pull it, but what the jar is like less threatening or something. There's some critical way it's used in ancient Greece that term for jar. It's I forget what she what point she made with it, but it's kind of like it's more utilitarian or something, or it wouldn't be. It definitely, however she read it, it would reduce the kind of blame from what I could tell. Yes. Um. The, so with the jar itself, if it were a jar, um, because of the way that the jars were made back then, it's like very easy to tip over because That's the what base is. is so small. Yeah. It's like an so accident. It been an accident. Yeah. It's like exactly. oh, she bumped it, and oh no, it's bro. You know, instead yeah. of like she was lured and tempted and couldn't help herself or what you know, exactly. so created some original sin. Right. Uh, which which was also an interesting point is like the uh, the way that Eve and Pandora are kind of like conflated in some ways oh yeah big um, time they commit the same fundamental i don't know error sin as the western christian language would frame it yeah exactly um so that that's a, a pretty important distinction is is the box versus the um the jars because of the the blame aspect like if it's a box you have to open it there is no spilling it um, mm-hmm. And also, what's interesting is her her name itself is is she she goes into uh, detail about passive voice versus um, active voice with her name. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, which I, I I found interesting because you know, like our students are like, why do we have to know active versus passive? This isn't important. <laughs> uh- <laughs> yeah, in English, it's. I don't, of course it's important, but I guess it's not. Yeah, wouldn't be the first thing I would teach, but yes, it matters. Definitely matters. <laughs> um, it says here on page 14, there is a temptation to read her name as meaning all gifted. Pan, all, Dora, comes from the verb didomi, I give. But the verb in Pandora's name is active, not passive. Literally, she is all giving rather than all gifted. As an adjective in Greek, Pandora is usually is is usually used to describe the earth, the all-giving thing which sustains life. There is, um, blah 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 blah. She's becoming a Parthenos, but she is not yet finished, like a doll being dressed up. Um, Pandora. So Pandora's intrinsic generosity is erased if we think of her only as gifted. So the importance of translating her name is is uh, discussed in that paragraph where it's like right. Is she all gifted or is she all giving? And it's the idea of like all giving, which goes into the point that you were saying, um, where she was just um, going into the language of what was released from the jar in the first place. So is she giving all these positive qualities, um, especially when we don't know where that jar came from in the first place? (laughs) Right. Mystery jar. Who set her up, so to speak? Yeah. Zeus apparently maybe who knows yeah I think I I wonder if a book that would not intrigue me more because I've been plenty intrigued by this book for for at least big chunks of it but I wonder how the gods and goddesses hold up in comparison to each other because it's just so clear and this is kind of the joke I think modern people make about Greek myth is just like the gods are their god pantheon is nuts and are just so chaotic (laughs) and they're just always doing insane you know meddlesome things it's and it's also just so different from the Christian western uh, god very passive you know uh, figure 
And so I wonder if a book about th- like this, but just analyzing God behavior and goddess behavior only would would sort of deepen my understanding then. Because, it's, yeah, it's so clear that not only do the women in the Greek myths come off as, you know, not great, kind of these passive figures, but some of the heroes do too. Think of how she reads Perseus as sort of like, to kill Medusa, he just needs every favor in the book. He needs a hundred items from a hundred gods and, <laughs> you know, isn't able to accomplish anything by himself, essentially. And so, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think um, that part being unexplained and that role of the gods in it being unexplored is, uh, yeah, I don't know, it's a curious thing. It's an interesting reading. Yeah. Any other yeah. translation terms that jumped out at you, <clears throat> big or small? Uh, those were the three that like really jumped out at yeah. me. Okay, um, but there—I mean, each chapter or each essay definitely does some language analysis. Oh, multiple times. I would say that yeah. and interpretations of art, uh, classical art, are the two. That those are the two pillars that are holding it up for sure. So, yeah, well, well said. Um, Let's talk about my motif, which is more of a stylistic quirk than it is a motif per se. It's more of a style choice. And I will say the only reason I noticed this, I think you and I had misunderstood this book pretty deeply before we started it. I think at one point we (laughs) thought she rewrote the myths to be more in the women's gaze or from a women's point of view, which it's definitely not. And then we thought, like you had said, she's a stand-up comic. We thought maybe it would be a little more lighthearted and... It kind of is, and I think because I had that expectation going in that it would be sort of funny, I immediately started fixating on any time that she made a joke or made like a funny observation, which she does, and she's a capable writer, and it's like she has a good voice, I would say a decent balance. But she has one motif that I just could, once I noticed it, I couldn't break my brain out of it, which is that she loves to write a dense scholarly paragraph, and then the final sentence is where she puts her joke. Like, that is that is her favorite way to write, which is, here's a pretty straightforward, if not approachable, like, paragraph of analysis and scholarship, and then right at the end, I'll get you with a little zinger. <laughs> and so, that's my motif. I'll pull a couple of them just as examples, but yeah, once I noticed this... I just could not stop noticing it, and it almost became a joke with myself of being like, oh, wonder what the joke's going to be at the end of this one, you know? It's like you're trying to understand her, her, you know, dense analysis, and then you're just waiting for the kicker or the zinger. So a couple of them here. I won't read too many of them because there's more than a few, but we'll discuss just a couple. Uh, Some sarcasm here in the Pandora chapter. She ends a paragraph by saying, Thankfully, the hypocrisy of censuring women's behavior in general while maintaining an entirely different set of standards for the actual women you know has now died out. So that's a you know nice little <laughs> <laughs> joke about expectations. It's the classic, um, once I had a daughter, I changed my point of view type of male reasoning there. It's a common refrain we hear, you know. Father of daughters, we love that. Love to have a father of daughters, so that's good. Um, let's see here on 55 from the, even, even here I wrote down, it's from the Oedipus chapter. It's not, it's from the Jocasta chapter. (laughs) Um, that's just my, I don't know why I just can't get over that. So strange. That's the things you do in AP English, I guess, just never, never leave you. So. She says here about their relationship, We know that the alternative, a sexless, distant marriage, is perfectly possible. Merope's husband, Polybus, not even realizing that she had adopted a son rather than given birth to one. But Oedipus and Jocasta do not have that, so she is the rarest and most dangerous of things. A woman who doesn't become invisible to men even as she ages. How do we cope with a woman like that? All too often, the answer has been to ignore her. So, you know, calling her the most dangerous of things, that little kind of ironic twist, commentary, a little bit of a joke there and there's that and then the last one i pulled did you have any examples too by the way i should have asked any like jokes that she's made that stood out to you that you really enjoyed uh, just all the jabs at freud is like the biggest thing that i i noticed right right but um yeah she uses parentheses and inserts jokes quite a bit she does and also to be fair and clear it's not just at the end but this is just a trope she falls back to a lot stylistically and so i figured i'd bring it up but yeah she like i said overall she infuses the writing with some liveliness and and good sense of voice and kind of i wouldn't say lightheartedness but she definitely keeps things i don't know i guess modern would be another way to say it like approachable friendly ish would be maybe another way to say it this actually i think was my favorite joke the final one i'll pull it occurs at the end of a paragraph fittingly enough so this is when perseus once he has medusa's head starts to abuse that power a bit and starts freezing and turning many people to stone anyway 
Um, he reads here, Perseus kills Medusa and then goes on to commit hundreds more murders. In Pindar's, teth, in Pindar's Tenth Pythian Ode, he turns an entire island populace to stone, while Ovid has him petrify 200 people during a fight at his own wedding. That's certainly one way to make sure you have enough cake to go around. It's just, you know, a fun little <laughs> anachronism and modern joke about cake. <laughs> and then, I, I don't know, something about her reading of him and the fact that, yeah, he really does commit so many crimes in Medusa's name with Medusa's literal head. I, I hadn't really interpreted th that the way she read it, um, the kind of controlling nature of that. But anyway, just kind of a goofy little aside. And I also didn't know that he had performed that. I've never read a ton of Ovid. So interesting factoid and a little bit of a joke at the end. Yeah, I yeah, I, I do remember those ones. It's it's hard to I, I wrote down some of them in my own notes, but yeah, I definitely noticed that trend as well, um, which I think is what made the the reading even more approachable and less less like I mean, she's doing a lot of the same things as like Foucault, right, where he an analyzes a bunch of um, art and literature. Mm -hmm. But this is just like so much more enjoyable, I think, because her personality shines through. Yeah. And I know that on the back of the cover, she's listed as kind of an author, but never, it does not discuss if she has a PhD or some kind of degree. And so maybe this is just scholarship approach from kind of the bottom up, so to speak. I don't know if that metaphor makes yeah. sense, but it just could be a person who, you know, she's obviously quite astute and studied and knowledgeable, but maybe just hasn't been stuck in the academic stacks, publishing advanced things for for so long and maybe that's what yeah. helps definitely academic publishing academic writing that's um it's hard to unpack that it's not it can be quite dense it can be tricky it can it's hard to even tell sometimes like how to approach writing academically and I, I don't know we're also out of that world now too so <laughs> yeah. i don't know far be it from us to say in a, in a manner but yeah interesting stuff uh would you call the book funny so far <coughs> um i would not say funny um, but I will point out that, um, Haynes is British, so her, um, humor is more, uh, biting, kind of, um, sarcastic in a lot of ways. Um, mm -hmm. so there are funny bits, but I would not describe this as funny. Yeah. Would you recommend it with that being one of the essential points? Would you recommend it with that being one of the critical elements in your you know in a two sentence recommendation would humor sneak its way in because i would probably use words that i've already repeated on this podcast a ton like approachable understandable kind of lively maybe i don't know if i would include humor or funny but maybe i would though i mean it, she definitely has that going i think lively is is the perfect word i think to describe yeah her tone and the way that she approaches this. Yeah. I don't know if I would call it yeah. deeply funny. But, you know, yeah, to, I would not. to scholarship <laughs> first and other things second. But there you exactly. go. And now you're cursed. The other reason I did this motif, you are now cursed with that knowledge, so you will not stop noticing it, too. <laughs> you, you also will approach the ends of paragraphs with bated breath, thinking, what joke will she drop in? What reference will she make? What humor yeah. will there be to mine here from the end? So there you Ooh, go. We could make it into a drinking game. I guess so. I don't. Do you drink while you read a lot? I really don't. No. I fall back I can, to almost any now. other media while drinking. Games, TV, yeah. movies, but I, I absolutely cannot read while drinking. <laughs> do you do audiobooks while drinking? I've never tried. No, I already have a hard enough time with audiobooks because, like, my yeah. my attention tends to, like, wander. So, like, yeah, if I were trying to drink and do that, I would, I would not know what's going on. <laughs> yeah, audiobooks put me to sleep, oddly. And I love podcasts, but there's something about the the back and forth conversational nature of a podcast that keeps my brain active. Something about audiobooks put me, put me right down. Something just puts me puts me to sleep. <laughs> anyway, enough about audiobooks, a medium we're not covering on the pod. Not now, not ever. Um, <laughs> actually, that's, you know, read how you want to. It, it all counts. Um, let's talk about our list. At the end of every part one book club, we'd like to assemble a top three list of whatever we think is relevant in this work so far. The list change and the topics change from book to book. So let's make a list for this one. You set the list this week, so I'll let you explain it and start it off. What's our top three here? Top three contemporary references or allusions. Yeah, there's been a few. Yeah. So, Which is also another way that she makes this approachable, I think, is that she... 
ties it to Brand. things that you know her readers would actually be familiar with, um, regardless of whether you've studied the classics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fair. Yep. Um. <clears throat> so my my number three is um, the reference to Pulp Fiction, which is in the Pandora's. Um, because at, have you seen Pulp Fiction? Yeah, of course. Yeah, so there's like the the box that they the golden uh, box. Yeah, and uh, apparently, like Samuel L. Jackson asked Quentin Tarantino, um, "What's in the box?" And his re- reply was, "Whatever you want it to be." Mm-hmm. Which I was like, "Oh, I, I kind of like that." <laughs> yeah, something. Well, I mean, something that shines gold, unless it's you know yeah. metaphorical gold. Yeah. Yeah, and and Pulp Fiction is such an an iconic movie too. Like, yeah, certainly. Yeah. Uh, my number three. Sorry, I, th- I forgot that uh, I have to go as well. <laughs> I also have a turn. Uh, my number three is the Wonder <laughs> Woman analysis on one forty. The reason I wanted to include it or at least mention it briefly is just because I thought it, along with another one I'll mention, was th- was thorough. It really summarizes the plot. It it brings up a lot of points of comparison and contrast between the Amazonians in Greek myth versus the Wonder Woman Amazons. And it, I just think it did a pretty thorough job. I don't really think it had, I think, you know, if you're writing a chapter in a book in the modern times about Amazons, you have to include reference to that. That movie was like a mega hit. <laughs> so it just makes yeah. sense too. I you can't begrudge that. I don't think it added any depth to my understanding or anything. It was capable though. And, you know, she's a good guide to things like that, kind of walking us through that analytically so i did enjoy the inclusion i I thought i'd bring it up just because i thought it was the most detailed or like most thorough it definitely was yeah yeah so Um, that one's worth mentioning also along the lines of the amazons um my number two is buffy the vampire slayer sure Um, respect yeah I, i and you know what like watching that show like it did not occur to me that this would be kind of uh related to the amazon so I, I was like oh as soon as she said buffy the vampire so i was like oh that does make sense um, <laughs> and right. and i appreciated the analysis that she put into that too i thought that was really well done yeah that it was did you find it i feel like there would have been more humor in that section because buffy is kind of a funny show right i mean i know it's also deadly serious at times but isn't that show kind of known for its humor its archness yeah very tongue-in-cheek a lot of the time yeah like that's one of the reasons that we you know it's got such a huge fan base is yeah it's dealt with humor and i mean serious things but also really funny at all the right it's the um who's that since kind of cast out director who wrote that show joss whedon that's it yeah and i know he's had some some real life issues and real life um i guess i shouldn't describe it i don't even know what it is i just know he's he's been kind of cast away i think he committed some crimes i was were they crimes i don't even know not sure why i'm dwelling on this anyway but i just know that he was pretty well known for being humorous injecting you know like goofiness and kind of that archness into the work so um, Mm -hmm. don't know what's up with him doesn't matter to me my number two (laughs) is your number one unfortunately so we got to spoil that but it's star trek with the helen of troy section i guess i'll let you speak on it more but i'll just say that i thought like the Wonder Woman section, the similarities and differences made for some compelling thinking where it was just kind of like, oh yeah, they they definitely are tweaking it and they're making interesting modern modifications to it and are kind of playing with the ideas. Obviously, Star Trek is well known for this, for taking famous plots and stories and like updating them into the sci-fi setting and using them for their own purposes. How did you read that or what did you enjoy about it? Because I, I will say this, I'm not a Star Trek fan, so I just thought it was a interesting example to use but i don't have a deep personal connection i love star trek um, yeah take it away so much <laughs> uh, but yeah the what i enjoyed about um her inclusion of that is that the female character she she does point out that the female character in this is like um is an alien and um exoticized anyway not only is she an alien but she's also played by um and um an asian actress yes um, right. and um clothing is fairly sparse and all that other stuff whatever it was the 60s 70s mm-hmm. um your princess leia type garb huh <laughs> exactly. or in the original trilogies i mean yeah 
Um, what I liked about it too was like she, she the inclusion of that is that um, the title of that particular episode like uh, was obviously um, calling forth the Helen of Troy myth, but it it spins it on its head in that it empowers the female a lot more. She's like being forced essentially to be used as a, a pawn to to broker peace. Um, and she just kind of does her own thing. And she's like, I ain't gonna marry that dude. I'm gonna do this thing. And she's like, you know, seducing Captain Kirk, of course. He's, you know. Yep. Well, he's the dashing the leading man, right? you know, of course. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, but what I really liked about it too was like her inclusion of the, the conclusion, um, which is Kirk just like kind of s- sitting happily on the bridge and just being like, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to just be on the ship and you can go on your own way. Like, I just, I love that the war is still averted um, and that, you know, things ended happily ever after in its own way because of that. Um, but I just, yeah, I just like, I like the play on that and her analysis of that. And, and, um, and I just love any reference to Star Trek. Yeah, I think, and the fact that she becomes violent too is interesting. The original Helen of Troy is pretty passive. I think in the the 2000 whatever movie, the Brad Pitt one, she does, I think, a couple of things. Like she tries to, I forget what she does in that movie. I forget how she is portrayed, but she she like is kind of active in some ways. Tries a couple things um, to manipulate or like take control of the situation. Whatever I might be imagining that, but in this one it seems like she's yeah pretty violent and yeah is supposed to be able to biologically seduce people, but can't get Kirk. You know he's in love with the ship. What can you do? Yeah, the one exactly. true love, <laughs> the Enterprise. His one true love. Yeah, yeah. That was a fun one. That was my number two as well, just because I thought uh, the thoroughness I appreciated too, and it raised mm-hmm. uh, comparison to my attention that I'd never heard of or considered. So, did you know that episode before you read this book? Oh, yeah, I've, I've seen all of the original Star Trek. Oh, and gotcha. Several of the other spinoffs. Oh, yeah, you're deep in it. You're way beyond. Way beyond. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, amateur work here for you. <laughs> my number one for the top three contemporary references or illusions is just a Homer pick. I didn't think it was especially insightful, though I did love one aspect of it, and that's the reference to Clash of the Titans, the original Clash of the Titans, which is kind of mm-hmm. a... It's an interesting artifact because it still feels kind of epic, but the pacing and the action in it to a modern viewer just looks crazy now, obviously. It's rather stilted looking and really stiff and everything, so the effects don't exactly hold up per se. But it's still just a a really wonderful movie and one that I I enjoy watching occasionally. And it makes for a great, she even mentions this in in a British lens, but it makes for a great cable TV movie. You just kind of pop in and out, watch a couple scenes. It's, It's fun viewing. The reason I put it at number one though is just because I thought her joke about the Kraken was especially funny and also I really don't think I would have put that together I'd also never analyze the film in that way but yeah there's no krakens in greek myth it's referred to as like a sea beast or something and there are plenty of sea beasts in greek myth like charybdis and i don't even know all the names of them and poly something there's the hydra it's kind of a sea creature anyway but there's no kraken so the fact that that's what the filmmakers went with is interesting it kind of combines a couple different mythologies and cultures together but that's more of a norse thing which she points out Mm -hmm. yeah that was I hadn't even thought of that because I've seen that movie as well. Um, the release the Kraken is like such a right. That's that's where that comes from. Release yeah, the Kraken. release the Kraken. <coughs> but yeah, I, I remember that line, and I, and I had not made that connection that yeah, the Kraken is not even associated with Greek mythology. Like I love that she yeah. pointed that. I'm, I feel like I'm constantly learning stuff when I'm reading this and, and I appreciate that. Yeah. It's been, you know, edutainment in the best sense, pretty yeah. informative. A lot of, like I said, factoids. I don't think it's, I don't know. Again, I, I don't think it's primary motivation is that, but it has been, there's been some nice reminders is I guess the way I'll put it. Some nice little, yeah. um, refreshes on topics but yeah i just wanted to give a shout out to clash of the titans a very charming fun film and um a nice reinterpretation or a good update for me on on kraken references can't just go throwing that around all casually (laughs) do you prefer clash of the titans to percy jackson (laughs) oh wow 
I think I do think she did bring up Medusa with the Percy Jackson books. I I do mm-hmm. think she's maybe doing herself a disservice by not referencing those stories more because they are wildly popular and it's mm-hmm. honestly it's probably how the majority of kids get introduced to Greek mythology now. I know that there are still some classic myth books and art books that are popular. With even like elementary kids, the myths will get rewritten to be a lot more tame and friendly, and then kids get yeah. them in like the their picture books. There's big art and colors and things. But I will say that most students in middle school their their functional knowledge of Greek myth would come from Percy Jackson, <laughs> and then whatever right. their teachers decide to teach. So yeah, I don't know. I'd like to see her infuse more of that, and I'm I'm a defender of the Percy Jackson series uh, for myriad reasons that we don't have to go into right now, but yeah, no, I I enjoy Percy Jackson. Clash of the Titans, to me, is it's almost something you laugh at and not with, though I think some of it is still actually kind of holds up and is pretty interesting. Um, Like the Medusa scene in Clash of the Titans, I actually think works really well still. It still has a kind of intensity and frightening there's this frightening nature of Medusa there. Also, it's a battle Mm -hmm. scene. It's not as we covered earlier. It has nothing to do with the original myth where he just kills her in her sleep. It's an actual, you know, she's... It's not just straight murder, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, she's defending herself. They have kind of a little battle and clash of wits. She kills a couple people who are with him. He has, like, soldiers with him. She kills them so it's it's a far different scene but I, and I still think that has a nice tension to it um, and she's kind of frightening in her claymation way <laughs> but anyway yeah no <laughs> I guess my, my wish for the second half is yeah more Percy Jackson work if possible I don't think there will be too much more because what Percy Jackson relies on so much is the pantheon and then the monsters <laughs> it's not so much right. about heroes though that's def- I mean the Percy Jackson kids themselves become the heroes um, but it's far more about the gods and their behaviors and then there's just tons of monsters in those stories and that's the thing that Rick mm-hmm. Riordan plays with probably the most so so anyway, yeah, I, I enjoyed reading that series when I taught it to middle schoolers. I thought it was, thought it was well done. And yeah, she briefly mentioned it in the Medusa chapter, but I thought that yeah. it would have been more because in the Percy Jackson one, she's like got a, a collection of statues. Which yeah, she's a really frightening yeah. figure. Well, you know, as frightening as middle school literature goes. But yeah, she's she's yeah. unwell. She's like. It's sort of, I remember there's some lines or something about her being lonely, and so it's kind of like that's how she makes and keeps her friends. It's like those are her, the, her companions, and she can't, yeah, you know, keep friends otherwise or can't, like, have people around her. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice scene, but it's, it's like so much of Percy Jackson. See, now we're just doing the Percy Jackson pod we finally, you know, delved into. <laughs> um, but the Percy Jackson, what it loves to do is to use a Greek, an aspect of Greek mythology in a chapter and then never bring it up again. It's That that book yep. actually breaks down very conveniently into a chapter by chapter. It's like every chapter is a new adventure, basically, with with some exceptions. Yep. But that, that it is so structured that way that so that every chapter resets and gives a prospective student reader like a new thing to get excited about and learn about. It's just so heavily structured that way. And so, yeah, it's, yep. she gets one chapter of attention, like everything else else except for the gods and stuff and then they move on so yeah it's yeah i thought it was interesting i definitely taught that book in that chapter um it's also a fun chapter to read with students because it builds tension in clear ways and is meant to be kind of like frightening so you can kind of teach that out of it shout out to percy jackson (laughs) any other percy thoughts before i move on Nope, I'm good. No more Percy analysis, then we'll save that for part two. Um, And any other thoughts on Pandora's Jar by Natalie Hines so far? Nope, I'm good. Or Haynes, sorry, Natalie Haynes. I thought I mispronounced that, and I did. Excellent. Well, that's going to wrap up our part one book club on this essay collection, which we've, I I would say, been enjoying pretty pretty heartily. Part two, though, big challenge for me personally, because I don't think it has many myths I know. I'll see if it can keep my attention, keep my interest. I will do a a good job, at least, of being an active reader. So (laughs) do my best. Um, If you enjoyed part one, keep an eye on the feed for part two. We post book club episodes every Friday, so just check back on Fridays for those episodes. If you stuck with us this whole time, we thank you so much for doing so. And if you can rate us on any podcast platform we're up on, basically all of them at this point, um, Spotify, iTunes, all the major ones, uh, Amazon's 
to anyway leave a rating and review it helps a ton helps get the word of the podcast out to the people and we're on facebook and instagram another reminder about that we are just at the lightly literary podcast which is all one word so check us out in those two places that's where we post updates and reminders of what we're covering and um, now it's the new year amanda this is when i get caught up right yeah. this is it this is the promotional right, right. you got it <laughs> four behind but that's no no issue. Small work, really. Going to immediately get caught up post-haste. No problem at all. <laughs> um, maybe this will be the year, though. That's a good goal resolution for me to set. So There you go, yeah. Sweet. Put it on the pile with all the other resolutions. Um, as I said, we'll see you next week for part two. Thanks, as always, for listening all the way through. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. And until next time, we'll see you between the pages.